All right, so this morning we're going to be in the book of Philippians again. Last week we were in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Today we're going to cover a whopping two verses. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Last week we talked about God's calling for unity in the church, unity of believers, and we saw that it was done through the Spirit of God, the Spirit that indwells believers, and the true unity can only come with believers, through believers, and in believers because of the Holy Spirit. And then we saw Christ's example, his incarnation, his coming and living a perfect, sinless life on earth, becoming flesh and dwelling among us, that he took the form of a bondservant, that he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. In reflection of this, Paul goes into chapter 2, verse 12. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is an interesting passage. <clears throat> as a new believer, I remember reading this passage and going, what? Like, you know, just kind of like, work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I don't, I don't understand this. And so today we're going to try to dig into this and give a proper understanding. But first I want to say, from the earliest days of the church, the understanding of what happens in sanctification has, has been debated. Is it all of God? Is it all of man? Is it some, you know, combination of both? Our salvation has like three pieces to it. We have our justification, which happens at the time of salvation. Like, you are saved when you are justified by Christ, through Christ, when you are found guiltless before God because of the blood of Jesus. Then is sanctification, and then glorification. So between our justification and our glorification, which happens when, when either we die or we are raptured, this whole time in the middle is our sanctification. And who's at work in the sanctification is the question. The same question has come up when it comes to salvation itself. Is it all God's doing? Is there a requirement of man to respond to the gospel of Jesus? Scripture makes it clear about salvation that involves both God's sovereignty and human response. Paul reminded the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In John 6, Jesus declared, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And yet in Acts 16, 31, we're commanded to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Salvation is not by human works, yet it is always through personal faith. It seems to be a paradox in what is happening here is Paul says to the Philippians, just as you have always obeyed, now in my presence, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then in verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a seeming paradox. You see this in other places in scripture. While Jesus is both fully God, he is both fully man. While scripture is written by human authors, every word is divinely inspired by God. God eternally secures believers, yet we are commanded to persevere. Christians who try to reconcile these seeming paradoxes through man's rationale tend to end up on extreme views. So at Calvary Chapel, we like to call, you know, actually, Kim, Kim said this to me once, we're Bibleists, which when you type in Bibleists into a word processor, it says that's not a thing. And so like, it gives you like the red underlines, like try to spell that differently. Uh, but we are Bibleists. And, and what that really means is we don't fall into one camp or another. We don't align ourselves with theological constructs of men. We allow the word of God and the seeming paradoxes that, that are found in it 
to be held in tension with one another. Inevitably, they are two sides of the same coin, both true. When it comes to, when it comes to this view of sanctification, this view of becoming more like Christ in our lives after our justification and before our glorification, the extreme views end up in, in what's called quietism and pietism. The quietists believe that believers' sanctification is passive. They, they believe in terms, you, you, you maybe heard this, and it makes for a great bumper sticker, but it doesn't make for great theology. You know, let go and let God. Or, I can't, but God can. There's a little more truth to that one. But let go and let God. Quietism tends to be mystical and subjective, focusing on personal feelings and experiences. And any desire for righteousness, any any positive movement towards righteousness in Christ is kind of seen as like a, you know, hey, you're doing too much. Just let God do the work. The other side of it, pietists, on the other hand, typically are aggressive in their pursuit of correct doctrine and moral purity. Historically, this movement came about in Germany in the 17th century with the the dead orthodoxy of the Protestant church. The Protestant church had, had forgotten what it meant to passionately pursue Jesus. To their credit, most pietists place strong emphasis on Bible study, holy living, self-discipline, but they often stress self-effort with the total disregard for divine empowerment. We don't want to miss that, which frequently leads them to legalism, moralism, self-righteousness, judgmental spirit, pride, and hypocrisy. You probably, as I'm reading this about a pious, you probably maybe thought of someone that you know that kind of fits that mold. That everything is from their effort, forgetting that God is the one who undergirds them. So in Philippians 2, this is one of the things I love about Paul. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul presents an appropriate resolution to the believer's part and God's part in sanctification, yet... He makes no effort to rationally harmonize the two. He doesn't say, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then he doesn't dialogue about what that means and how to, like, completely understand it. He says there are these two things that you need to know, passionately pursuing God and that God is at work in you. They're both absolutely true. The same emphasis is found in 2 Peter. If you want to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter here flips it. As Paul gives us man and then God, Peter is going to give us God and then man. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So based on this divine provision that God has given us, Peter then charges the believers, and he says, now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about this, about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. If we flip Peter Peter places it in a negative. If we flip it to the positive, for for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you useful and fruitful. He's saying to them, pursue these things so that you are useful and fruitful for the gospel of Christ. We don't sit back and wait. We are useful and fruitful for the gospel. 
In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labor, labored even more than all of them. And he, he balances it again. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Passionate pursuit of what God has called us to be and called us to do by the power of God. See, God's divine grace and power undergird the faithful and obedient believer. Believer's sanctification requires a diligent effort, yet it is empowered by God. The point of sharing the, the, the verse here and the verse in Peter is to show that this, this apparent paradox is, is taught all through Scripture. We'll see it again in 1 Corinthians. We'll see it over and over. Some misguided interpreters will interpret this passage as work for your salvation or work up your salvation or work at your salvation as if your salvation itself is the thing to attain. The salvation has been attained through the justification of Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross. The sanctification is what it's talking about here. Faith alone has always been the way of salvation. Faith alone. It was by faith that, from the very beginning, that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up and he lived no more. It was by faith that Noah built an ark. It was by faith that Abraham went to offer his son. He believed and it was credited, 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 okay, I felt like I was about to go into a rap there, okay, <clears throat> yeah, give me the beat, credited to him as righteousness. If, if you want evidence of this in the Old Testament, look at Hebrews chapter 11. It just talks about the hall of faith. You know, we, we lift up and we give fame to people in this world, useless and stupid, the hall of faith is the one that is to be honored and treasured. People that have walked with God. So verse 12, Paul focuses on the responsibility of the believers to live lives that were consistent with the divine gift of salvation. Like in Galatians, if we're to live by the Spirit, we are to walk by the Spirit. And every single ounce of what we do takes energy. To walk, to work, to think, to meditate, to obey God, it all takes energy. So the point of verse 12 is that it takes spiritual energy to grow as a Christian. You know, I played basketball. I know, surprise, surprise. I played basketball. <clears throat> I played basketball in college. And um, to get to a place where I could be offered a scholarship to play basketball in college, it took a lot of energy. It took a lot of effort. It took a lot of training to get to a place where I would be able to do those things. Sometimes we separate the things that we do in the world and the spiritual things. They're a lot closer than we imagine. We give effort. You know, we go to school. If you're a surgeon, you go to school for what, like 62 years? You know? Um, I went, you know, I went to college, so what, what, 16 years of school, and then I just did another couple, I'm finishing my master's right now, like, so like 18 years of school, a lot of effort, I mean, more effort in the later part of my schooling than the earlier part, <laughs> my mom would attest to that, but it takes effort to get to those things, but we separate them out sometimes, we say, oh, I'll give this effort to being a great basketball player, or an effort to, to getting my, my master's or my doctorate or going to school, I'll, I'll do this great effort to get my apprenticeship in, in whatever I'm doing, and then over here we're like, let go and let God. <laughs> we miss it. A passionate pursuit is what we are called to do. And the main verb in this verse to work out is katergozomai. Uh, which specifically calls, this is a really cool word, it's a word for energy, this workout, but it actually has this, it, it calls for constant energy. It's not a burst of energy, that's a different word, something where it was like, hey, I need you to like hit this thing as hard as you can. That's a different word. This word calls for constant energy and an effort necessary to finish a task. Paul's words 
in verse 12 give us five truths that the believer should, maybe even must understand to sustain this energy. So we want to have the energy that it takes to be sanctified, to go through the sanctification process. And Paul gives it to us here. So we'll break down this verse. The first element the believer should understand is Christ's example. He says, he starts off with, in your Bible it might say, therefore. In mine it says, so then. So it's referencing the thing that he was just talking about. And he was just talking about Jesus' incarnation, Jesus coming to the earth, Jesus living a perfect life, being a bondservant, offering himself up as a holy and beautiful sacrifice for mankind. So know the example that has been set before you is what he's calling. The second thing, the second element is that believers should understand that they are greatly loved. So then, my beloved... Paul wants them to know that they are loved by Paul and that they are loved by the Father. Paul knew their shortcomings. You know, it's it's unlikely that the church at Philippi had a synagogue in Philippi before the church became a church, which is a shortcoming to the people because a, a knowledge of Torah, a knowledge of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would, would not have been as strong. So there's shortcomings there that they might be susceptible to to false religion coming in and creeping in, false doctrines coming in and creeping in. But if we learn at the Galatian church, if we learn anything, that, that, that that same false doctrine can come in through the synagogue as well. But Lydia, when she is, she's the first convert in Philippi, it says that she with some other women were meeting outside the city gate by the river. And Paul came and spoke the truth to her and her whole family believed and they were all baptized that day. It's amazing what happens when one person is open to hearing the truth of Jesus and how lives are changed. And then Paul gets put in jail, and while Paul's in jail, the jailer receives Christ. Because, you know, everything broke open, the chains were released, everybody's free to go, and they all stay, and they're singing spiritual songs and hymns, and the jailer's about to kill himself. Because if the jailer is on duty when everybody escapes, he's going to get tortured. So he's about to run himself through with a sword, and Paul's like, no, 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 no. We're all here. And in that moment, he went and listened because of the sacrifice of Paul. I mean, it's a a sacrifice to Paul. Paul had freedom, and he stayed. And because of the sacrifice of Paul, his whole family saved, all baptized. And when it says his whole family, it's not necessarily meaning, you know, um, um, husband, wife, kids. You know, they live differently than we live today where, you know, it takes 30 minutes to walk five houses. They all lived with each other and close to each other. So it's, it's likely that 10, 15, 20, 30 people saved and baptized that day. Talk about starting a church with Lydia's house and the jailer's house. That's a church I would go to. People that have been radically changed because they have been moved by the Spirit of God. And so, to know Christ's example, to know that they are loved, and the third is believers should understand the need for obedience to the Lord. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, obedience to the Lord brings energy. It gives us an energy that causes us to be able to do what God has called us to do. It says in verse 7 of chapter 2 that Christ took on the form of a bondservant. In Philippians 1.1, Paul calls him and Timothy bondservants. James, Peter, and Jude all use those words to describe themselves in their letters. Bondservant translates doulos, which is the word for slave in this time. It's a person who is subservient or dependent on another person. But the Hebrew word for bondservant actually gives us a better picture of what's happening here. It's the word abed. E-B-E-D is how we read it in the English. It had a similar connotation. However, the Mosaic law allowed for indentured servants to become bond servants voluntarily. We read in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, verses 5 and 6, if the servant declares, I love my master, and my wife and children do not want to go free, Then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear. 
with an, with an all. Right there. And then he will be his servant for life. This is the kind of bondservant that Paul talks about. This is the kind of bondservant that Jesus was to the Father and the Spirit. You know, directly after Jesus came out of the water, it says he was led by the Spirit of God to the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus followed and was obedient to the call of the Father and the Spirit while he was incarnate on earth. So we are called to have that same example, loved. Here's the example, loved. Loved by the Master. This is not a harsh overseer, not a harsh overlord. This is the God of creation, the lover of people. And so we follow. We are obedient to him. And Paul, Paul talks about in, later in, in Philippians in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, he, he's kind of saying like, look, if anybody could be outside if anybody could like do their own thing, if anybody was justified in this world, it's me, and yet I'm a bondservant. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks that they, they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. <laughs> Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, that's special because favored son, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But, I love the but, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying, I'd rather be a servant in the house of the Lord than to live on the house on top of the hill. I'd rather be a bondservant taking orders from God than to have everything else. Paul, as a Pharisee, commissioned by the Sanhedrin to go out and to persecute the church, he is given this power, this authority. He doesn't have to do any. He can say, that guy right there preaching the gospel, kill him. That's what happens to Stephen. And he says, all the power, all the authority, all the things that have been given to me, it's in the past. It's loss. It's at the garbage. It's nothing. So the fourth element that a believer should understand is personal responsibilities. Now this, <clears throat> when I talk with students, we talk about this a lot, about getting out from underneath your, your parents' faith. And I, and I mean it like this. It's like, I, I imagine like our parents' faith is like this, uh, this umbrella, okay? It's, it's guarding us from the dark things of the world, from the things that want to attack us, you know? It's keeping the rain off our shoulders. But at some point, your faith in Jesus has to be your faith in Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying to them here. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul is saying, I understand that I am your spiritual father. But dad's leaving. I'm going to be beheaded. I'm gone. And you have to survive without me. It is how we hope to raise our children in a way that when it's time for them to go their way, their path, their life, their families, to cleave to another, that their faith is their faith. Now sometimes it happens, you're raised in a family that they don't know Jesus. The parents have no faith in Christ. And so sometimes we, we bond ourselves to another. And whatever happens to their faith seems to happen to our faith. And we don't want that either. Our faith in Christ is our faith in Christ. You are responsible for your own walk with Jesus. If everybody around you gives up and hides and goes away, your faith in Christ is what must stand. When we think about the church, I'm always thinking about the church in China when it comes to this stuff. These people that have to meet underground, they cannot meet, they don't have church building, they don't have this. We're so blessed to have this. They don't get to just come in, sit here, listen to great music. 
hear the word of God. They don't get to do that. They have to be underground. And you know what? There's times when persecution comes, and sometimes it separates. Your faith has to be your faith. The fifth element for believers working out their sanctification is understanding the consequences of sin. This is the working out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is one of the... This week of studying this passage, it's my favorite thing about preaching, is being able to study one passage for seven days. <laughs> to be able to read over and over all the commentaries, all the lexicons, all the Greek words, the Hebrew words, all these things, and just kind of like let it soak in. This passage is just full. Fear translates phobos, which describes two different kinds of things here, fright or terror, as well as reverential awe. And then trembling is from tromos, which refers to shaking. It's where we get our English word tremor. Both of those are proper reactions to the awareness of one's spiritual weakness and the power of temptation. When we understand who we are in the flesh, when we understand how weak we are without the power of God who is at, at, at work in us, and we know the power of temptation, we should be, we should have a fear and trembling. In our flesh, we are too weak to do anything. Isaiah 66, 2, God is saying these are the kind of people that he wants. To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. An important Old Testament truth, we've heard it a million times, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I remember as a new believer being like, Hold on. When I got saved, people told me, like, you know, hey, Jesus loves you, and now you're telling me to be afraid. But there's a difference between being afraid and the fear of the Lord. See, it's important to know that this fear is not the fear of being doomed to eternal judgment or torment, nor a helpless dread of judgment that leads to despair. See, we know that in Christ, that's not our game. We know that in Christ, our upward calling is eternal life in heaven with him. So there's no fear. There's no fear of, oh man, I sinned right before I died. No, no, no. That's not, that's not how it works. Or, or man, I, I, did, I, I, man, I sinned a lot last week and I forgot to ask forgiveness. And, and now I'm, oh no, what's, what's going on? No, that's not our lives. Our lives are eternal life with Christ in heaven. The upward calling, as Paul calls it. It's a promise. It's a gift. It's been given. It can't be taken back. It's part of his covenant. He made a promise. And God does not break his promises. It's rather a reverential fear, a holy concern to give God the honor he deserves and avoid giving the glory to anything or anyone else. So this fear and trembling is of the fear of giving what deserves, what God deserves to anything else. And I'll tell you, we do that. I do that. The fear and trembling should come from knowing and understanding that God wants, God deserves, and God commands all the glory for himself. Which, if any one of us had that mind about ourselves, we would be in sin. But God, understanding his infinite worth and his infinite value, says the glory goes to me. It's a hard thing for us sometimes to, to, to understand. So for us, it's sin. For God, it's perfection. Such fear protects us against temptation and sin and gives motivation for obedient and faithful living not wanting to give glory to anything or anyone else. 
and to give glory only to God motivates us to obedient and faithful living. This fear involves what I, I, I like to call it a self-distrust. If you know what I mean, it, it, what, really what I'm saying is a sensitive conscience. But like you know yourself. You know your weaknesses. You know when you sin. And you know that there are certain things that lead you to sin. And sometimes we toy around and play with those things, knowing that the outcome of this is probably me in sin. Having this holy fear and trembling causes us to put that away, to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. The beautiful thing about this, though, is this fear and trembling doesn't come from fear. This fear and trembling comes from adoration and love. See, the adoration and love for God, it wells up inside of us and overflows in a fear and trembling. So it's adoration and love that lead us to fear and trembling, which keep us from sin and on a path with God. It's a beautiful thing. We don't live our lives scared. We live our lives loving God. Remember that workout is a command that has a continuing emphasis. The principle of working out salvation has two aspects. It's daily and persevering in the long term. Paul encouraged the, first Corinthians, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9. I'd like you to turn there if you're in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. This is such a, a beautiful word picture Paul is so good at this. So starting in verse 24 in chapter 9, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? Duh. But only one receives the prize, unless you're living in 2024. Here's your participation trophy. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, a little trophy. But we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way that I am not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body to make it my servant so that after I have preached to others, I will not be disqualified myself. He's saying, I train. I'm training for this. Like, he knows. He has been called to do something great, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he's saying, I'm not just going to walk in and be like, hey, so, you know, God loves you. He is training in a way to know the word, to understand the word, to be able to take the truth of Jesus to the people, to be able to defend his faith through the righteousness of Christ, through the power of Christ. And so, what are you called to do? What are you training for? And I like this, I like this where he says, you know, it's not just beating the air. I imagine like, you know, uh, so I, I used to work in a jail, those guys who don't know, 14 years in a jail, and every once in a while I'd walk past the, you know, we had to do, every 30 minutes you had to walk past the doors, you, like walking in, looking at people, you know, making sure nobody's, you know, doing anything crazy, and every once in a while there'd be a guy in there like, <laughs> you know, doing this, and I'm just like, are you, are you trying to impress me? Like, are you, are you trying to, like... Who are you fighting? What are you training for? He's just in there swinging at the air. We train for something of highest value, and that is the salvation of lost souls. That's what we're training for. Earlier in the chapter, or in chapter chapter one, for the sake of the gospel is why we're unified. We all train for this thing so that people, he says, so that after I have preached to others, I may not be disqualified. He, we have a high calling. Are we training for it? You know what training looks like as a believer now, right? 
understanding, knowing the Word of God, the beautiful, special gift that has been given to us. So many Christians have dusty Bibles just sitting on the shelf. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul tells the Philippian church and demands aggressive Christian living. He says in verse 12 through 14, he says, not that I have obtained or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That, that term there, it's a, a lot of like quick words in a row, but that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of for. He's saying that I have a purpose. God saved me for a purpose. And Paul is not on his own. Every single one of us has been saved for a purpose. And Paul says, so I'm going to strive forward to obtain that purpose, to attain it, to fulfill it. He says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, because we don't complete it. We work to the end. Katergozomai. Continually working, giving effort. Forgetting what lies behind me and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press on toward the goal of the prize. The goal of the prize. The prize is eternal life in heaven. So I press on. So that he's saying I press on so that I, I'm guiltless and in, in, I'm not wasting my time. I press on so that I honor Christ in all of my decisions. If the Christian life were merely a matter of passive yielding and surrender, let go and let God, then such admonitions would make zero sense. So verse 12 showed us the believer's responsibility and sanctification. Verse 13 is focused on God's role in the believer's sanctification. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Jesus, in his last discourse in the upper room, which to me carries with it a heavy weight, the last things he's going to say before he dies within 24 hours. He says to them, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you a branch that is firmly connected to the vine, getting your resource, your power, your strength? From Christ. Paul gives us five things here. This is what we'll wrap up with. It's five things from this verse. Five P's. I don't usually do the like letter thing, <clears throat> but this time it, it worked. Uh, five P's. First is for it is God. So his person. His person. That, that should almost like, that could, that could just be enough, right? Like, hey, strive for unity, strive for godliness and righteousness, strive to do what God has called you to do because it's God. Like that could be enough. But he doesn't leave it there. So it is God. He's the, you know, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all life, almighty, all powerful, all gracious, all giving, all merciful, like God. The omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent creator and sustainer. Loves his children. He loves us with an everlasting love. He protects us according to his everlasting covenant and promises, forgives, cleanses, gifts, empowers so that we can do the work that he has called us to do. So it's his power, his presence or his person, his power, for it is God who is at work. Work here is the form of the verb energeo, which is where we get our word energy. His power enables our sanctification. You know, Jesus, his great commission, 
before his great commission. You know, he says to us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey the commands that I have given you. Right? He says this to them. He gives them this commission to go out of the world and to do these great and mighty things. Before he says it, he says, he says, all authority, before he sends them out completely, all authority or power has been given to me on heaven and earth. So before the final call to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the remotest parts of the earth, it's fulfilled in Acts 1.8 where he tells them, you will be given the Holy Spirit, which will give you the power to do the things that I have called you to do. God doesn't just call them to say, hey, go make disciples of all nations. Go start the church. Go be my voice to the world. Go. No, he says, I give you power. I give you strength. I give you the knowledge. I give you everything you need for godly living. Beautiful thing. So that leads us to his presence. For it is God who works in you, gives you energy, and he's in you. The spirit of the Lord is in all of us, all believers. The Lord talks about this over and over, that he will give us another helper. It is a spirit that works in us to cause, that causes us to have fellowship and work together that can be accomplished only through the Holy Spirit. The Galatians, I, I love when Paul, Paul talks plainly, he, he says these things, he says, um, are you so foolish to the Galatians? which is a common language of saying like, can you be this dumb? And he says to them, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? In, in that verse we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says the same thing, forgetting your purification from your old ways? Like, you've been purified from the old ways. And this is, so I have a pet peeve with Christians uh, which, which I am one of, um, we, we say this thing sometimes. We say, you know, hey, I'm just, a, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Is that true? Yes. But I just don't like that we identify with the old self first. Because here's the truth. You are redeemed for a purpose. So when we identify ourselves with, I'm a sinner saved by grace, we're identifying ourselves with the flesh. I don't want to identify myself with the flesh. I want to identify myself with the Spirit. Yeah. Let us identify together with the Spirit. And that is how we are unified together. We don't go, hey, you know, you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. Let's do things together. <laughs> Paul's like, are you dumb? We do, it by the, we do it by the Spirit. It's the Spirit in me and the Spirit in you that allows us to work together and be unified for the sake of the gospel. So let us do it together in the spirit and then it's for his purpose that's the last one for his purpose that's not the last one there's two his purpose and his pleasure both to will and to work it's best interpreted as referring not to god's will and work but to the will and work of the believer the will to do what is right before god must proceed effective work the the, the idea here is to make God's will, your will. To be so aligned with him that his will, his calling, is second nature for you. Or first nature. That it becomes who we are. The psalmist in Psalm 119, this is what he means when he says, incline my heart to your testimonies. He's saying, Lord, pull my heart out, put your heart in. Make my heart your heart. It's what happened when Ezra spoke when he reported that the, the heads of the fathers of the households of, of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, when it says, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go rebuild the house of the Lord. So that the stirring in the hearts of all the people was the will of God. Making his will our will. So knowing who we were and knowing where we are going is of the most vital importance. 
God uses that, knowing who we were and where we are going. He uses that to stir our wills. I want to call it like a a holy discontent and a holy aspiration. You know, when Isaiah said, I see the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. So Isaiah says as he sees this, he sees the Lord exalted. And his response is, oh no, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me, and I live with a people of unclean lips. Knowing who we are, what our flesh is without the Spirit. It's a holy discontent. And then the holy aspiration is the other side of this. The positive side of holy discontent. After he instills in us a genuine hatred of sin, he cultivates a genuine desire for righteousness. That's what Paul was talking about when he's saying, I have yet to obtain it, but I I strive for it. I run the race for it. I'm passionate for it. I can't wait to do it. And here's the thing is that as our will is aligned with the Spirit of God, as we seek Him first over our flesh, we end up with the mind of Christ that we saw last week, willing to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We come together to be unified for the sake of the gospel. And here's the beautiful part, is it's all for His pleasure. This is one of my favorite verses in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, and then in verse 9, it says... The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ and made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention with which he proposed in him. Our supreme purpose is to obey and worship and glorify God. And because that is God's supreme calling for us, God has gifted us with the ability to do it. Just like he told the disciples to go make disciples of all nations. And he didn't just say that and leave them to it. He gave them the power and the strength, the Holy Spirit, the helper, the conscience, the support, the comforter. He gave them all the things that they needed to go forward. And so today, even more, than what the disciples had, those first century Christians had. We have the complete word of God to guide us and direct us to be our firm foundation in Christ. And so as we go out to do the work of the gospel, we have the spirit, we have the word, and we have the power of Christ. You know, John Piper is famous for this, saying, you know, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So when we align ourselves with the spirit of God, when we align ourselves with his will, we can taste of a satisfaction that cannot be given any way in this world. In this world, I think we tend to like want to fill ourselves with something. Different kinds of Selfishness, different kinds of immorality, food. We try to fill ourselves. We try to fill ourselves with something that will satisfy our yearnings. But there is only one thing that can fill you, and that's the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't leave any peace unfilled. You are filled with the Spirit completely. So I want to challenge us as a church, as a body of Christ together, to passionately pursue what God has called you to do. So just as Paul said that he was laid hold of for a certain calling, what were you laid hold of for? Why is it important? What is important to you and how you serve the body of Christ? So in that, let us together Lean on the power of God. And we do that through unity. We are here for one another. We are here for each other. If you don't know what God is calling you to do, then let's get together and talk about it 
and pray about it and see what God is calling you for. And then we change the world. Lord, we thank you that the seeming paradox is really just tension in Scripture calling us to love you with a reckless passion, to follow you, to pursue godliness and righteousness through the power of Jesus, to hate our sin, to hate the things that keep us from glorifying you. Lord, there are so many things in this world that are are pushing at us and pulling at us and trying to pursue our desires. May you be our supreme desire. May we recognize because of who you are, because of what you did, because of how you laid down your life for us. May we echo that in response of our own lives. Lord, help us to be a living sacrifice poured out on the altar of God. May it be a sweet and fragrant offering to you that the world around us partakes of. God, I thank you that we get to know you, be drawn close to you, and that our satisfaction comes from you. Where else would we want to draw our satisfaction than the one who is the divine giver of all things that we need? Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that has not accepted Christ as Savior, that has not entered into this relationship with the Spirit, or that today would be the day of salvation. God, that today would be the day that they put away their sin and reach out to Christ. Lord, help us all to have repentance in mind, constantly putting away what what keeps us from you, what keeps us from glorifying you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.